The glory of humanity is the difference, the differentiation, individuality of each person, and the fact that each individual is unique and irreplaceable, which, which makes each individual precious, precious, precious. I'd like to talk to you this afternoon about two classes of Americans, and it may not be the two classes you think of, but nonetheless, there are two distinct classes in America, and we have to break up. Break up. Break up. Break up. You don't get freedom peacefully. Anyone who is depriving you of freedom isn't deserving of, an, of a peaceful approach. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being by any means necessary. Welcome to the Unrestrained Thoughts Podcast, a Utah-based program that focuses on ideas, politics, culture, and the current events going on in the world around us, whether locally or globally. I'm your host, David Iglesias. What's up, everyone? This is David Iglesias. Welcome back to another episode of the Unrestrained Thoughts Podcast. Today, I have another great special guest. I'm joined here with Dan McKnight, he is the um, founder and chair of Bring Our Troops Home, which is a incredibly important organization right now. Um, Dan, why don't you go ahead and tell people what it is you do and a little bit of your story around how this happened. Sure. Uh, Again, my name is Dan McKnight. I'm a 13-year veteran of the United States military. I served in the Marine Corps uh, for three years and then the Army for 10 years, including a tour in Afghanistan uh, from 2005 to 2007. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan, I was there as a member of the uh, Idaho Army National Guard. We were an attack helicopter battalion. And at the time, I was very, uh, I, I bought hook, line, and sinker into the Bush Doctrine and the, all the purposes for going to war. And, um, you know, Bush was my dude. And I was there. I was down for the fight. I, I, I re-enlisted the National Guard after 9-11 because I knew that uh, the Apache helicopter unit out here in my hometown, National Guard, would be the ones called on to go fight. And I wanted a piece of it. And uh, the National Guard uh, at, the, at the time hadn't been much of the United States military's offensive uh, uh, operation. So the National Guard would backfill when the active duty went to war, but they wouldn't actually deploy themselves. But that changed uh, early in the war in Afghanistan. Uh, they started using National Guard because of the, the pace of the mission. We were fighting war in Iraq and Afghanistan. We had troops stationed in Africa and all across the, you know, like the Horn of Africa. And so they needed the National Guard's bodies and equipment and training and expertise to help wage these multiple wars that, that our, our country was engaged in. Uh, the problem was that the active duty military hadn't um, trained with the, the National Guard and nobody wanted to take control. Nobody wanted to take command of the National Guard troops that were in country. And we were assigned to the 82nd Airborne and to the 10th Mountain Division. And neither one of them really wanted us uh, as, as part of their, their, their uh, cadre of, of personnel. And when it came to logistics, we had no real outlet. Uh, we had guys that were needing boots and goggles and uniforms and gloves and things that soldiers need, body armor. And there was no supply chain for us to, to, to access because again, 10th Mountain and 82nd didn't want anything to do with the National Guard. And uh, I had guys that were wearing threadborne uh, bare uniforms and worn out boots. And out of frustration with my own chain of command, I grabbed a satellite phone and climbed to the top of a, of a mountain deep in the Pesh River Valley in northeastern Afghanistan, and I got a real clear signal, and I called the only place I knew to call to get help for my men. I called home, and a friend of mine put me in touch with our governor of the state of Idaho, who's the commanding general, or the commanding officer of the, uh, or the commander-in-chief, excuse me, of the National Guard, 
And at the time, it was a, it was a, a gentleman named Jim Risch. And uh, Jim Risch had just been appointed governor. He'd only been the governor for a, maybe a month or two because our current governor had gone to work in the Bush administration. And uh, Jim Risch answered the phone. And I said, Governor Risch, uh, this is Sergeant Dan McKnight. I'm one of your National Guard troops. And I'm calling you from Afghanistan. I, I hope I have your attention. And, he's, and I did, and he listened, and I told him about the supply issues and that we didn't know where to go to get this, this help, and we needed him to do something. And he said, Dan, he goes, I, I don't know what I can do, but I do know that I'm the commander-in-chief, and I'm going to do something. And true to his word, in 48 hours, I had a, a, a memo or a phone call from my chain of command saying that the supplies that we needed were on their way, and then they took away my satellite phone. Right? They weren't happy with me calling home the governor. It made them look bad. And so I always held Jim Risch up on this kind of pedestal uh, as a hero. Uh, he, he, he'd gone out of his way. He had heard one of his constituents, uh, one of his soldiers in the National Guard cry for help, and he had done his job. And uh, I came home from the, the war very disillusioned about the process. I felt like we didn't have a mission there. I felt like we were fighting um, more amongst ourselves than we were fighting an, an established enemy. We were building roads only to see them blown up the next day. We were helping build schools and water treatment facilities and securing their elections. Um, but at the same time, we didn't have a clear mission and our rules of engagement were messed up. Our hands were tied. And I just felt like there was no clear mission, no clear policy and no clear purpose or drive. And that every American that was coming home in a flag draped box uh, had done so because a, a leader, a general, a politician had failed them. We were there and we were handcuffed during our fight. So I became very disillusioned with the war. And uh, I went underground uh, angry when I came home. Uh, I lost my home. I lost my, my family uh, to divorce. I lost businesses that I had started before I'd left. And uh, I became uh, an angry veteran. And uh, 10 or 12 years went by before I, I really re-engaged with society uh, or politics at all. And uh, what had happened in 2019, the Republicans regained control of the Senate. And I saw a news article one day that our senator from, the, from my state, from Idaho, had just become the chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. That's happened in our state once or twice before. It's a very powerful position. And the name of the senator was Jim Risch. He was the same governor that had helped me 15, 12, 15 years earlier. And I thought, you know what? I'm tired of seeing my brothers go back to war over and over and over and over again, some as many as eight or nine deployments from the National Guard. I'm going to call Jim Risch again, and I'm going to see if he'll, if he'll use his now authority and his position as the, this powerful senator, probably the second most powerful man in foreign policy in the entire country next to, to President Trump at the time. And I'm gonna ask him to do something to help end these wars and stop sending us off to fight wars without a proper declaration. And so Jim Riss showed up in Boise one day and I showed up uh, at, the, at the event he was at uh, with a camera crew. And I set the camera crew off to the side of the room and I said, hey, if I stand up and ask him a question, start the cameras. And uh, sure enough, uh, I got a chance to stand up and ask Jim Rich a question. And I, I, I reminded him who I was and of our past. And then I, and he stopped me right there. He said, Dan, I remember you. I remember our, our phone call. And then I asked him, under what situation, what set of circumstances would you use your chairmanship to advocate for ending the war in Afghanistan and bringing our troops home? And he said, Dan, I'm with you. I am through with nation building. As long as I'm in this position as the chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, we are done with nation building. And that turned U.S. foreign policy 180 degrees from where it had been for the last 70 years. And I thought, my God, that was easy. I've asked Jim Rich twice, and twice he's come through for us. Well, Jim Rich got on a plane and went back to Washington, D.C., and 
Three times over the next 90 days, he voted to extend the wars in Afghanistan, Yemen, and Syria indefinitely. And at that point in time, I knew it was time for veterans like myself that had been there, that have seen it, that are from the global war on terror ourselves, it's time for us to stand up, unite, and find a way to influence Washington, D.C. to reclaim their authority in Congress to be the only party that's authorized to declare war. The president shouldn't be able to do it. He can't, according to the Constitution. But Congress has literally castrated themselves and allowed the president to take us into war without any checks or balances or authority or limitations or oversight for the last 80 years. And so we started this organization, Bring Our Troops Home. And uh, we're an organization that we spread across all 50 states, veterans from uh, World War II all the way through current, current times. And we started lobbying Washington, D.C. to to reclaim the war powers into Congress. And after a very, very brief period of time, we realized that that was a lost cause, that there was no way it was gonna happen. Um, we had taken a group of 100 veterans and lawmakers back to DC to meet with their congressmen and senators, plead our case, ask for their help, ask for them to do their jobs. And uh, the meetings were very polite and non-productive. And in fact, uh, Liz Cheney, you know, the, the, pro the heiress to the war profiteer fortune herself, told one of our members to his face that if it were up to her, our troops would stay in Afghanistan forever. Not, not in forever, that we were gonna be a permanent military presence in, in, in Afghanistan forever. And so we said, you know what, DC is lost. The swamp is too powerful. The military industrial complex has too much money, too much influence. We're gonna take our fight back to the states, to the legislature. So we're gonna go back and lobby people that I see at the grocery store. You know, I see my, my, my representative in the state legislature at the grocery store all the time. Our kids go to the same school. They go to the same churches that we attend. I said, I have more influence over those folks than I do over some career bureaucrat or career elected official in DC. And so we thought of a very creative way to, to lobby the states to get in the, in, the, in the foreign policy game. And we came up with a bill called Defend the Guard. And I'm sure we'll go into that in detail in a minute, but that's where our effort really just took off. And we have expanded exponentially. And we feel like we're on the right track because every time we present this bill in front of a legislative hearing, we're attracting opposition from two-star generals, uh, military industrial complex spokesmen. And uh, so we feel like we're, we're barking up the right tree finally. Yeah, no, that's, um, I think that's a great point. You know, when you see that there's, they're actually sending their leadership and they're sending people that have higher rankings to go and testify against you, that's definitely a sign that you know, you're you're challenging them and they're afraid that they see that there's actually potential here. Um, one thing I really liked about, you know, what I've seen as I've engaged in trying to help, you know, I because I um, I reached out to you in the past and said, hey, I want to try to head up the efforts here in Utah. Um, and one thing that has been just it stood out to me is seeing that your story is so common. You know, I, I've come across different veterans, different people that have served and still serve. And it's a similar story of, you know, something happened, they were disillusioned, they were unhappy, they were frustrated, and they felt like things were not the way that they were sold to them. And so this movement that you and your organization have started, I think is um, extremely important. And I'm really excited to bring more attention to it um, and, and highlight, you know, this isn't just an anti-war hippie movement from the 70s kind of a thing where that you know they hate on everybody and you know they spit on the troops or insult everybody this is this is veteran led this is led by the people that have signed up and put their lives on the line and actually have skin in this game not just 
you know, vocal, obnoxious uh, protesters. Absolutely. So, and you're right on that. After Vietnam, you know, they, the, the troops came home and they were disillusioned with that war as well. And, and the hate Ashbury hippies and, you know, the anti-war protests, you're right, it was very disrespectful. And, and the, uh, the Veterans for Peace movement that came out of Vietnam, it was not well received by the American populace. It was, it was seen as counterculturist and uh, outside of mainstream. But I mean, look at most of our members. Most of us still maintain some military bearing, right? Still, still got a little bit of a fade haircut going. We still remain physically fit. We're active in society. We come from all political spectrums and backgrounds, although I think most of us are probably right of center on a political spectrum. Um, and that's different from the, the post-Vietnam era where most of the, the Veterans for Peace organizations and, and Code Pink and all that, they were extreme left of center. Mm -hmm. And what happened when they started shouting down the war is people quit listening. They got, they got tired of the drum circles. They got tired of the, the tie-dye, you know, the, the hippie movement. It, it wore out on society. And we feel like we're different than that now because we're coming from right of center. And we're, we're, we're going after Republicans and asking them to, to be more true to their constitutional principles. And we're asking the left to be true to their anti-war principles. Um, I'm as anti-war as they come, but I, if my country asked me and properly declared war in Congress to go back and fight and defend my country, I'd be the first one there. And so we're not this, we're not this giant anti-war movement more than, than we are a follow the constitution. If we have to go to war, then there better be a defined purpose we better do it with the proper authority. We better support the troops when they do go and allow them to complete the mission and come home. Right, exactly. And that, that leads perfectly into, you know, talking about the legislation. So um, I know a lot of people, I, me personally, I didn't understand how all of the proper authorities and declarations and, and all that worked before I, you know, took a look into this whole bill and everything. And it's really not that complicated, but we've, you know, it's become so muddied and more complex and just, you know, ridiculous than it needs to be. So maybe help my listeners and the people who are going to see this that might not be so familiar with how the, the delegation of powers works. What's the role of the Constitution? What what is Defend the Guard legislation striking at? Sure. Let's let's start with that. What is Defend the Guard legislation? So it's a it's a very simple bill. And I'll start with, uh, with explaining what it is. Defend the Guard is a state bill that is uh, stemmed from the Constitution. We shouldn't need this bill because the Constitution is very clear on this, but it basically says that the National Guard or the militia of the states shall not be released into federal service to fight in an overseas and undeclared war, to act as an instrumentality of war, or to serve in a combat or hazardous duty period uh, because of war. And unless, unless Congress has first done their job and declared war, which is required by Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. And the, the support for this bill comes from actually the Militia Clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, which states that the National Guard can be called into federal service for three purposes. To enforce the laws of the Union, to repel an invasion, and to put down an insurrection. It doesn't say anything about war. However, if Congress meets debates and votes for a declaration of war that declaration of war becomes the law of the union that gives the national guard the militia the authority to be activated and called into federal service to go and fight america's wars which the national guard should the national guard should be part of our defense they should be part of, of defending america's interests all we're asking before our troops put their boots on the ground is that congress puts their name on the line first and the reason this is so important is because since 1942 
Congress has never declared war. The last time they declared war was World War II against Romania, Hungary, and Bulgaria. And since that time, I made a little list of just a few, just off the top of my head, and I'll try and go chronologically real quick. The Korean War, the Lebanon Crisis, Vietnam, Bay of Pigs, the Dominican Civil War, the Korean DMZ enforcement, Lebanon again, Grenada, Libya, Persian Gulf, the Tanker War, which nobody ever talks about, Panama, Gulf War, the Iraq no-fly zone enforcement, Somalia, Bosnia, Croatia, Herzegovina, Haiti, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Yemen, Iraq again, Northwest Pakistan, the Somali Civil War again, Operation Ocean Shield, Libya again, Uganda, Iraq three again, again, right? Syria mm -hmm. and Libya again, again. Those, those are the wars that just off the top of my head that the president himself or the Department of Defense generals and unelected officials have sent the United States military into these conflicts is what they call them, armed conflicts. But I like to think of armed conflicts the way the Supreme Court defines pornography. We can't define it, but you know it when you see it, right? Mm -hmm. If there's a bullet flying at you and you're returning a bullet in the other direction, you are in war, correct? So right. that's why it's so important is the, the United States military has become the, uh, the president's own foreign policy hammer right? And every foreign policy problem is a nail. Well, guess what? The military is not a hammer. We're an option and we should be a last option after everything else has been exercised. Diplomacy and sanctions and all the other tools that the president also has at his disposal. And so this bill just forces the Congress to reclaim their authority from the president. No single man or woman should ever be, have the authority and power to take United States from a state of peace into a state of war. Never. And it's not set up that way. The Constitution doesn't support it. Our founding fathers were very fearful of it. And they set this, this mechanism, this enumerated power up uh, for that purpose. Yeah, wow. I, that, hearing that list is just, I already, you know, I'm aware of like, there's a lot of wars that we've been involved in conflicts, but hearing you just go off that list and it takes more than just five, 10 seconds to go through it, that's, crazy that you know it's and some of them are still ongoing conflicts as far as i can understand yeah we left um, i left the biggest one off the end of that list uh it's it's the the shadow war that's going on in africa right now we have as many as 80 to 100,000 united states military troops in africa actively engaged in warfare in 21 different nations in africa you don't hear about it on the news no you don't hear about it anywhere and it's a shadow war and we're fighting under an illegal authorization of use of military force from Afghanistan. It was, a, it was the AUMF that Congress signed in 2001 for Afghanistan specifically that gives the president the authority to send our troops off as mercenaries to all these other countries. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I remember reading uh, near the end of, I think, last year, they were deploying troops, National Guard troops, to the Horn of Africa for unspecified uh, missions that had nothing. It, they described it as like, protecting something with like civilians or like US civilians. I can't remember, but it was, again, it, as you laid out, it's not at all what the constitution is laid out is the responsibility of the National Guard. So one of the, the things that comes to my mind is I, you know, and I'm sure, well, I know you've heard a lot of the, the concerns and critis or criticisms or questions about the legality of of this and I, I mean you've clearly laid out this is a constitutional uh or constitution based piece of legislation um but there are still you know the legislators and lawmakers that you guys present this to or even just you know other people that hear it will ask questions like you know 
what what role or what's the legitimacy that a governor you know say biden goes and, and declares hey we're going to start sending national guard troops over to um ukraine or poland or you know the or taiwan and a governor you know let's say my governor governor cox of utah says nope we're not going to do that because you didn't you're not you know you're not authorized what's the legality the uh, the legitimacy behind you know the governor standing up to the presidency and just outright saying no that's a that's a great question and that is the, probably the biggest question we get and the, the good news is the supreme court has already made a ruling on this very issue and they have uh they you know i'll go into the details on that and also that the constitution supports the other side of the argument so let, let's go let's back up um in the 80s president reagan was uh in heavily engaged in central america um he was fighting the contras right and so he was taking the national guard from missouri and ohio and indiana and minnesota and they were going down into central america and they were doing training missions and these were civil engineer brigades they would go down there and they would clear forests and build landing strips and roads do things that they weren't able to do in the united states because the national guard can't come up to the united states and build roads they just can't do it it's against the law for the military to compete with the private sector. And so the, these, these civilian brigades, uh, these National Guard brigades were going down to Central America and doing training missions. And the left, they were so afraid that Reagan was gonna use these roads and airports and landing strips and bridges to invade Central America with the United States military. They were terrified of it. And so Governor Perpich and Governor Dukakis and a couple other Democratic governors filed a lawsuit. And they said that we are not going to allow our National Guard troops to go to Central America to participate in Reagan's war. The Supreme Court took it up and the case is called Perpich versus the Department of Defense. And the Supreme Court ruled that the President of the United States can take the National Guard and federalize them and take them outside of the country for the purpose of training. Very clear. It says training. It doesn't address war. It doesn't address humanitarian aid. It says training. So it's been ruled on that, that governors cannot interfere with that. Now, they purposely left out war from this decision. They purposely didn't say that the governors could not interfere with the president taking the troops into war because the Constitution already addresses this. The Constitution says, and again, we'll repeat it, that Congress shall declare war, right? And that the militia of the states can be activated for three purposes, one more time, to enforce the laws of the Union, to repel an invasion, and to put down an insurrection. So, Absent that declaration of war, there is no purpose for the National Guard to be called up and taken overseas for a war fight or a, uh, a uh, armed conflict. And so that's the biggest argument we have. And we would welcome a challenge. We would welcome Utah or Idaho or Texas or Louisiana or Kansas or Kentucky or Florida or any of the other 40 plus states that are considering this bill. We would welcome a Supreme Court challenge, especially with the current makeup of the court that we have now. We firmly believe of, you know, we would have a five to three or excuse me, a 5-4 or a 6-3 decision if this went to the Supreme Court right now. And uh, that, would put the, that would put the argument to bed forever that the National Guard, the militias of the, of the, of the states um, were to remain under their governor's control unless Congress did their job first. And so once again, we're not trying to keep the National Guard from participating in these, in these wars. We're trying to make Congress reclaim their authority. No, I'm not trying to be vulgar here, but we want them to uncastrate themselves, make themselves effective again, and, and reclaim their enumerated powers. Again, it's, it's about the Constitution. And uh, if, we, if we use the Constitution and we expect the, the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marine to raise their hand and swear an oath 
to defend the Constitution, all of the Constitution, then we should honor that same document and use it properly whenever we engage and put their lives on the line. Right. Um, you mentioned, and this is something that I also constantly hear when I talk about Defend the Guard with, you know, whether it's potential sponsors or just people interested. They, one of the first questions they ask is, who else is doing this? Has anyone already passed this? Like, but you mentioned that there are, I think it's 40 plus states that are getting involved. So what's, um, especially this past legislative legislative session across the country, what have you guys seen as far as the progress or the the roadblocks um, with getting this bill passed? That's a great question. So um, we've made great progress in some of the states that we're in. I'm just going to rattle some off right now that have, that have got legislation moving forward. Uh, Nevada, Idaho, Utah, Arizona, um, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, Louisiana, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, where it started, and we can talk about that, uh, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Maryland, Rhode Island, Maine. There's Ellen Hawaii. I forgot Hawaii. And so we, those are the states that have sponsors that are actively working. This year, uh, we had a, a, a killer organization in Kansas uh, that did a really, really good job of organizing and, and mobilizing and educating. And we actually got competing bills in the House and the Senate, not competing, companion bills in the House and the Senate. And so we had a, a sponsor in each one. And the House bill was sponsored by the chair uh, the chairman of the uh, Military Affairs or Veterans Committee in Kansas. Um, and so the, the support's growing. Now, the closest we've come to passing this out of any house uh, is in West Virginia, where we lost by one vote on a procedural vote to have the bill discharged from a minor committee onto the floor for, for passage. And uh, that's, that's where the, the bill started. Uh, West Virginia Delegate Pat McGeehan, he's kind of our OG. He's our original gangster to defend the guard. He started this. We borrowed it from him, repackaged it, labeled it Defend the Guard, and now we're, we're carrying it across the country. And Pat is a, a global war on terror veteran. He's a graduate of the Air Force Academy. He's an intelligence officer. He's an accomplished author working on his doctorate in philosophy. He's brilliant. And uh, he, this was his baby. He started this. And this was his fifth year, I think, this year. This is his sixth year, excuse me. So he's been running this bill for six years before we took it up three years ago and ran it across the country. And so that's the closest we've come. Uh, we've had incredible uh, uh, hearings in Michigan, in Texas, uh, Kansas, Florida, Idaho. We had uh, the bill was defeated in Idaho by a chairman who essentially lied about the vote. He called for a voice vote and it was overwhelmingly uh, in favor. The eyes were overwhelming. And uh, because it wasn't a roll call vote, he gaveled out and said the bill was defeated, got up and walked out of the room. Um, We've passed resolutions that support this bill in Montana and in South Dakota. Uh, Maine and New Hampshire have got some incredible advocates. So it's growing, it's gonna catch on. And when one state finally passes this, and I think it could be Florida might be the first one, they're, they're really aggressive on this bill, uh, or Kansas or Texas. Um, and once it passes in one state, I think you'll see other states that will get in line and say, hey, this is okay, we've got a little bit of cover. And uh, speaking of Texas, let me tell you an incredible story there. This is going to blow your mind. Our, our sponsor down there is Brian Slayton. He was a freshman uh, Liberty uh, legislator. He was very uh, kind of from the Ron Paul camp, that, that, that Liberty. And he 
learned of the bill at a, at a freshman legislator convention and ran right home, contacted our sponsor here in Idaho, Representative Ben Adams, a veteran, two-time combat veteran Marine, asked about the bill, asked for details. We sent it to him. We, we called him. We started talking to him and, and giving him some coaching and counseling. He uh, filed the bill. He got a committee hearing um, in, in no time. Um, whipped the support of the of the committee members, and we went in there with a, we thought about a 50-50 chance of coming out of it with a, with a passage from the committee. And uh, the the chairman was shocked. He did not believe he, he he almost essentially called us a liar when we told him that Congress hasn't declared war in 70 or 80 years. He didn't believe it. And when we showed him the proof, gave him the receipts and, and showed him, he was like, oh my gosh, something has to be done and Texas needs to be the place to do it. He took our sponsor yeah. behind closed doors and said, hey, baby steps, incremental progress. Let's take your bill. Let's, re, let's rebrand it. Let's call it inform the guard. And what we'll do is we'll just, we'll rewrite the bill. And, and this is what it says now, instead of the National Guard shall not go unless Congress declares war. Now it says, all enlistees in the Texas National Guard will sign a piece of paper acknowledging that they may be asked to fight in unconstitutional wars. Give me a break. Wow. <laughs> so he subbed out the language, rammed it through his committee, pushed it out on the floor while our freshman bill sponsor is going, what the heck is going on? And it passes the Texas legislature on the House side 100%, not a single opposing vote, not one, not even our bill sponsor voted against it because it's his bill. Right. They, they stuck his name on it. They gave oh. him the poison pill and uh, he had to support this garbage. And so instead of doing what's right, they said, let's just bend the rules a little bit. Let's ask him to swear an oath to the constitution and then tell him that they're going to openly violate it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. That's, that's politics. Yeah, no, that, I, that is so dirty how they, how they left him. I can't believe that. Well, I can't, I mean, that's, that's a classic move that doesn't, yeah. Wow. So, well, um, so another kind of going back to some of the, uh, the objections. I know another one that's commonly brought up is uh, it has to do with funding. You know, there's a lot of concern surrounding the funding that could potentially be moved or taken away or concerns with military bases as, as far as the, the response from the federal government. Now, you guys haven't really there's not been an official statement or response from the federal government, right? I'm, I'm glad you asked, uh, because until recently, there hasn't been. So let's, let's, um, I'm going to talk about the, the argument, then I'm going to read you what I've got right here in front of me. Yes. So the argument's always been uh, that the states will lose up to $500 million annually of federal funding if, if this bill passes, because why would the federal government fund the state National Guard if they're not able to take them and do whatever the heck they want? Mm -hmm. Right? Why would the federal government send $500 million to Utah if Utahns aren't, who are part-time citizen soldiers, if they're not going to go and do the, the will and the bidding of the president of the United States. It's a fair argument. So there's a couple things though. One, it's complete garbage. It's false. It's a false narrative. Here, and, and, there, and here's the reason why. No president, none, even the, the sleepy guy we got in the White House right now, or dangerous orange man who was there before him, neither one of them would dare defund the National Guard because they don't want to affect readiness of the National Guard, right? In case the National Guard was actually needed. If there was an actual crisis or an actual war and the National Guard wasn't equipped and funded and trained, it would be, there'd be so much political poison in that that they would never recover from it. So readiness is one reason. Number two is the blowback. 
right? The, the BRAC list uh, in Congress, that's the base realignment and closure list. That is the one that if, if a base comes up on a BRAC list, every single representative and senator in Congress will fight to keep that base open because they, they know that it means a couple of things, right? If they let a base close, they know their career's done. They know they're through. So America loves our military bases. We love them in our in our communities. We love them in our states. And so I don't think that that, that argument is real. And to prove that it's not real, in Kansas, I'm, I'm holding, as Rush Limbaugh would say, in my formerly nicotine-stained fingers, an, uh, a letter, a fiscal note from the Adjutant General of the Kansas National Guard. And it says the Kansas National Guard or any of its members uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, I, I missed that. So uh, let me let me start over here. Uh, the following fiscal note concerning SB 370, which is defend the guard. Uh, let's see, no member, where is it? I'm sorry, I should have been more prepared. Right. I had it highlighted here. I wasn't quite ready. No worries. Oh, here we go. The Adjutant General's Department states that enactment of SB 370 would not have a fiscal effect on the state of Kansas. Zero, goose egg. We got this on accident. We asked the Adjutant General's office for a fiscal note on this bill, and this is what they responded with, and then recanted and asked to have it back. Nope, sorry, I've got it, we own it. We now have actual written documentation from an Adjutant General, who is the highest ranking officer in the State National Guard, who mm -hmm. is also a paid lobbyist of the National Guard Bureau and the Adjutant General's Association. So he wears multiple hats. And they said the quiet part out loud. And we've got it. So now that if that that argument is gone, we've got we've got it. And so, and the, the most important part, though, let, since we're talking about dollars, the most important thing about the money, how much is the life of one Utah National Guardsman who's on his fifth or sixth or seventh combat deployment, and he gets blown up in the Horn of Africa and killed? He gets killed in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Syria. He gets killed in Ukraine. What's the value that you're going to look at his wife and his children and say he had to go to war illegally because Utah needed Humvees. Utah needed a Black Hawk helicopter because Utah needed federal money. They needed trinkets. They needed um, gifts from the federal government. What's that dollar amount? You tell me what it is, and then we can work our argument backwards. Is it a million dollars a life? Is it $500,000 a life? Is it $300,000 a life? Whatever it is, let's get that argument out there. Let's get somebody to tell us what the value of one single lost life is worth, and we can have, then we can have a real discussion. And if they can't put that dollar figure, an accurate dollar figure on it, then it's garbage. The argument doesn't hold water. And who's going to tell that, that, that National Guardsman comes home in a flag draped box that he came home the way he did. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for his country because of money. I'm so tired of the states being beholden to the federal government for the money of the people. We give the federal government our tax money and then they bribe us at the local level. And our states are so beholden to the heroin, to the crack of the federal government, that if we don't stop it, our, our, our republic will be lost forever. We got to remember our rights, our rights are bestowed on us by a God, right? Our government is created by the authority that we temporarily loan them. They don't own us. They don't pay and buy us. We own them. They are beholden to us. And as soon as we get that mentality straight in our country, this argument, it, it's baseless. Right. And that makes me, that, that brings to my mind, you know, talking about what, what's the, is the cost 
know, is the benefit greater than the cost? Well, here in Utah, we had a, we actually had a mayor who was a national guardsman. I think it was of North Ogden. Ogden. Yep. Yep. And he went and he was killed training uh, in an insider attack too, training these Afghans. And, you know, it, obviously the most tragedy, the most tragic part is his family just lost that husband, that father figure. But then another huge impact is a city lost its elected mayor and was the benefit. I mean, now that we see the fallout and the whole aftermath of what even happened with Afghanistan, what could that mayor have done in his city? And so I think that's a a really important point that really does drive home the sobering perspective of what what's at stake. And when you talk about, oh, it's money and, and shiny new toys and funding, it really does kind of show where does your where are these people's priorities if they're really going to say that that life and all the impact that that life could have had for something that, you know, ultimately didn't even end up paying off the way that we were sold it would in an overseas venture. Um, so I kind of want to transition this into now an opportunity to maybe speak directly, if you would or could, to any potential, well, I guess there's two people I have in mind that um, might be listening or eventually hear this. One of them might be a veteran or an active duty, someone who's a member of, member of the armed forces, and you know they're hearing this and they, they agree with it. What, what can they do? What should they do? What's the next step of action? You know, someone here in Utah that hears this and this is right up their lane, what, what's the next thing they could do? Yeah, there's a couple options. One, we, we offer uh, education services. That's what we are. We're a, we're a 501c4 and we can help educate lawmakers, activists, citizens on this issue. So if there is a, a sponsor and, and veterans of the military do make the best sponsors of this bill because who's going to look at a veteran who's been there who maybe has a purple heart or came home with a little bit of PTSD or a combat action badge and saw real combat? Who's going to look at them and tell them they don't know what they're talking about? So we love veterans that are serving the legislature. Uh, to sponsor this bill. And the first thing I would encourage them to do is to contact us uh, at defendtheguard.us and hit the contact button um, or dan at bringourtroopshome.net is the email and ask for help. We will help you draft the legislation. We have model legislation, but we can help get it to your legislative services office and get it drafted so that fits in your state code. So it's specific to your state. Uh, Number two, we have um, members of of our organization that volunteer to help train you uh, as a legislator, help train you to build out a team of activists in your community. We have materials that you can help whip the vote in your own uh, house of, of the legislature, whether it's the house or the Senate. Uh, and we have strategies to help build effective uh, hearings. The worst thing you can do is to have a hearing on any topic and open it up for public discussion and testimony and have everybody go in and for three hours repeat the same talking points, right? This bill is so nuanced. You should have someone that's always willing to testify about the effects of war, the personal costs of war, about the constitutionality of going to war without a declaration, about the, the cost-benefit analysis, about Title um, 10 and Title 32 orders. And if you go in there with a strategy for these, for these hearings, you can cover a lot of material and never repeat anything and keep your the hear, committee hearing engaged. So we'll help train with that. Um, help building citizen activists to be able to do phone banking and knocking on doors and visiting uh, the Capitol building and influencing their elected officials. Those are all things that we can help do. But the most important thing is become educated on the topic and become a champion. 
we will give you as much support. We, we will give you as much as you need or ask for. We'll give you more than you ask for, but you have to know the topic. You have to be educated and we can help you get that way very quickly. We've got a lot of resources. Yeah. And I can, I can attest to that. I mean, I've definitely been consistently bothering you and Diego a lot over questions and, and resources. So um, I, I also wanted to highlight, you know, you actually addressed the second group because I mentioned there's two, there's the veterans and then also potential sponsors and, and you already addressed that. So perfect. So as far as veterans um, and, and members of just the community that, that maybe just have an interest in this, you, there's two places you can go. One, defendtheguard.us again, and there's a place where you can sign up for the email contacts and you can get regular information. You can follow that. You can track the bill in your state. I don't think, I don't think we have a Utah bill. No, we, we weren't able to get one in for this yep. session, unfortunately. So on the website, if you just click on your state, uh, you'll find if there is a bill there, you'll be able to track it and watch the progress. Mm -hmm. If there's not a bill in your state, you can suggest a, a member of your legislature on that same link. And we'll, we'll reach out and contact them and say, hey, you were recommended by one of your constituents. Um, another place you can go for some really, really good information uh, is bringourtroopshome.us. That's our parent organization and Defend the Guard is our, our project. So Bring Our Troops Home is where veterans can go and become part of a community of, of like-minded veterans um, who believe that if we do need to go to war, that we should do it properly. And uh, you, you won't get any real anti-war material from us. You're not gonna get the, the tie-dye, you know, drum circle stuff. You're gonna get real constitutional arguments. Uh, we're gonna show you people in the national stage members of Congress um, that support this, this philosophy, and you'll see the growing movement. Uh, and in fact, veterans should know this, that uh, a poll was conducted in 2019 uh, by the Pew Research Center, and they, they, they uh, polled veterans and active duty military members, and they asked them about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan specifically. 76% of veterans and active duty military said that the war in Afghanistan and Iraq wasn't worth it, and it had gone on for too long. 76%. You can't get 76% of people to agree that today is Thursday, right? It just, it's not going to happen. And so veterans, you're not alone. Um, this is, it's, it's not a popular position to say out loud in the military because your job is to do or die, right? It's not my question to ask why it is my job to do or die. That's a military mantra that we're taught from day one. And in the military, you're taught to keep your head down, avoid politics, and just do your job. But the uh, if this country is going to be saved, it's going to take leadership of veterans, those that have literal skin in the game, that are willing to write a check to their country up to the value of their own life in defense of the country. It's going to take us to restore the proper role of, of the military in our foreign policy and our, and our uh, constitutional republic. Awesome. Um, you guys also do have a, what is it, a war powers pledge or something of the sort on your, can you talk about that a little bit for yep. yeah, anyone who it applies to? Yeah, so on, on bringourtroopshome.us, um, we have a, a, we call it a War Powers Pledge. And uh, it's basically, here it is. We send this out to members of Congress specifically, and you can see it right there, and uh, or candidates for Congress. And it says that I, and this is Brian Smith, who's running for a second congressional district in Idaho against possibly one of the worst uh, Republican congressmen in the entire country, Mike Simpson. Brian Smith wrote, I, Brian Smith, pledge to the citizens of my state that I will insist that Congress exercise the constitutional authority granted solely to the legislative branch to declare war. While presidents may respond to sudden attacks against the United States territories or military forces, 
offensive deployments or extended commitments of U.S. military forces must be debated and approved or rejected by Congress. It's simple. We didn't add anything in there that you can't find in the Constitution. And good candidates and good congressmen all over the country are signing it. Uh, Rand Paul signed it. Tom Massey signed it. Andy Biggs has signed it. Uh, believe it or not, the same Jim Rich that I talked about at the beginning of our podcast, he signed it. And I've got it in 24 by, four, by 36 uh, poster board. Now I blew it up. And I take it with me every time Jim Rich is going to be there. I have it on display so he doesn't remember, so he doesn't forget it. Um, I've, I've, I've had it outside of his home in, here in South Boise on a, on a pedestal. I had it out there for a, a little rally. Um, we hold it over their head. Um, one of the best uh, things we can do is, is get uh, elected officials on the record, right? Get them on the record. The way they vote, the way they speak, hold them accountable for things that they say and do. And what they say and do in their home districts if it doesn't match what they do when they're back in the beltway in Washington, D.C., then it's time to replace them. And we should replace them before they can become so powerful that we can't. Getting rid of Jim Rich now is impossible. He's going to retire in, in five years um, uncontested. No one's ever challenged him in the Senate. Um, you look at people like uh, Mitch McConnell, right? Irreplace I mean, you, can't, you can't beat him. They've got too much money and too much influence. And so the, the key is to hold these people accountable when they're freshmen. Right before they've got all the lobby money, before they've got all the PAC money, and make them accountable to what they say to the people at home and what they do when they're in Washington D.C. Is uh is Utah Senator Mike Lee on that list of, of Mike, uh... Mike Lee is he, he's one of the he's one of the great ones right Mike Lee has got a Liberty streak in him that's a mile wide. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I remember. I, it was about a month ago. I think he. I got a random phone call inviting me. It was just a you know auto call where it invited me to some tele town hall he was hosting, and so at one point it said, "Hey, you know, call in and ask him a question." And so uh, I figured I'd give it a shot. And on his live on his tele town hall, I asked him right there was and said, "Hey, you know, we've got all these issues going on with wars and the AUMF and no declaration from Congress. You know, what are your thoughts on defend the guard? What do you say about it?" And in a, in a roundabout way, he, he, he said that he wasn't super familiar with the whole ends and goals of the organization, but he said the idea of Defend the Guard, on record, I, he said, and I have to find the recording, but he said that it was something that he thinks is a really interesting subject and he thinks strikes at a really important uh, subject matter, which is the delegation of power and when Congress can switch us to war and it, that it's Congress, not the president, not the executive, nobody except Congress. So that I, I'd be interested to, to see if we can get him a little bit more on record <laughs> supporting this outright. But yeah, he, he hasn't come out and openly endorsed the Defend the Guard legislation yet. But if 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 uh, you just Google Mike Lee's name and war powers or Mike Lee and uh, um, enumerated powers or Mike Lee and foreign affairs, you're, he's 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 right on this most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, Burgess Owens in your state has talked, uh, I've spoken with him and he's, he's supports, he hasn't signed our pledge yet, but he's, he agrees. He's pretty consistent on the, on the, uh, uh war powers. Um, I was going somewhere with that on a fleeting thought. I apologize. It, it wandered <laughs> no off worries. on me. No worries. Well, um, we have about, I mean, I, I told you we would take about an hour cause I want to be respectful of your time. So, um, are there any parting thoughts, any last words or, or, um yeah just thoughts that you have that you'd want to leave 
before we wrap up? Absolutely. There's uh, we, we talk about Pat McGeehan all the time uh, as the creator of this legislation. And uh, Pat has, uh, he, he has taken on um, some of the biggest hitters when it comes to this issue. And, and I would encourage people to go to uh, both Bring Our Troops Home and to Defend the Guard uh, websites. And on the Defend the Guard website, if you click on West Virginia, you can find um, a, a link to West Virginia um, Delegate Pat McGeehan speaking and his, his talk is on, we are approaching a post-constitutional era. I would encourage people to listen to his speech. It's one that should possibly be taught in every high school civics class. It's one that every, um, every person in the military should watch before they enlist. It's one that every patriotic American should listen to. Pat McGeehan is a modern day, well, I don't even know who to, he's such a great order and he's just so brilliant and, 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 and understands philosophy and the just war doctrine. I would just encourage people to, to listen to him. And if you, if you really want to know more about how we started and how we became, um, we being veterans, got to this point of understanding the, the, the wrongness of what we've been doing for the last 20 years in Afghanistan, I'd encourage people to, to check out some, a, a couple books. Uh, one of them is, uh, is Scott Horton, uh, Enough Already. And his other book that he wrote is- um, Fool's Errand. Fool's Errand, thank you. And I read Fool's, Fool's Errand in 2016, right after it just came out. I just, it's 2017, excuse me, 2017. 2017, I was on a beach in the Dominican Republic with my brand new wife on our honeymoon. And I picked this book up. Someone had recommended that I read it. And I'm reading it on the beach that I read it in about two days. And I'm screaming at the book because it's validating everything that I felt inside of me, but I couldn't articulate. And so I'd encourage people to check, check out those two books. And then last, um, if you really want to know where, where America should be on foreign policy, uh, we can look to the past, to the recent past, and you can follow people like uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, he, he was really good about engaging, but with a clear mission and, and a clear purpose. He, he never went to Congress to get a declaration of war, but he believed in, in America being America first before it was popular, before Trump, you know, trumped it. Um, and then look to Ron Paul. When Ron Paul ran for president in 2008, 2012, he turned United States foreign policy and the discussion into something we could actually talk about at the dinner table. And uh, he, his movement spawned an entire generation of people that are based in the Constitution, probably more so than any other time in the last 40 years. And uh, I would I just encourage people to be, be open to learning more than what you learned in your high school civics class, because I promise you didn't learn most of this there. And that's part of our problem as a country is that we're failing in our education system to teach um, basic civics and government and constitutional classes uh, to our youth. And so when this, when this discussion happens, it's foreign to literally everybody. And uh, we buy into simple statements and mantras like uh, you're either with us or you're against us, right? Isn't that how we drug everybody into all these wars in the Middle East was President right. Bush using that, that argument. Um, and, and ultimately, finally, I'm going to ask that people please be engaged with your local um, government. Maybe not even on this issue. Be engaged. If your legislators, you're, you should have two, two representatives in your district and one senator. And if they don't know you by name, by sight, that's your fault. Make yourself known to them. Make it uncomfortable for them for when they, when they vote wrong. Make it uncomfortable for them when they're walking down the soda aisle at the grocery store and they see you come the other direction. Make them turn on their feet and walk away. 
and then chase them down and, and ask them about a vote, about a topic, about an issue. Be respectful, but engage with them. If they don't know you, you have no weight, no credibility with them whatsoever. And then all we are then at that point is just protesters. We're just angry, sign waivers. Um, be effective. Don't, don't be the loud guy on the, on the, on the, on the bullhorn at the corner of you know, Maine and First. Instead, be the guy that's the, the, the agent for change. I think, I think the word that sums up everything that's been going on, like between the movement, between what you just, uh, what you were just saying would be accountability. I think Amen. all of this is just about making sure that those who, who have been put in charge are held accountable for what it is they're doing. Um, Dan, thank you so much. Where can, where can people find, you've mentioned bringourtroopshome.us, defendtheguard.us. Where can they find you and maybe some of the other guys that you work with <laughs> that help with this? Yeah. So where can you find me? Um, uh, I, I do have social media, but if you ask me what it is, it's Dan McKnight <laughs> on Facebook, uh, Dan McKnight on Twitter. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what my, my handle is. I don't know. I'm, I'm a boomer. Look at me. I got gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you find Bring Our Troops Home, you'll know us when you see us. Uh, bringourtroopshome.us. Uh, if you go to the bottom, you can follow us on social media there. Defendtheguard.us, same thing. We've got the links at the bottom. Um, and then if you, if, you, if you find in your heart, uh, to, to donate and help the cause. There's several ways you can do it at either one of those websites, or you can go to our, our supporters club. It's, it's a private club that we have called the 107 club. That's T E N S E V E N club.com. And what that is 107 October 7th was the day that U S boots first hit the ground in Afghanistan illegally without a declaration of war. And we never want to forget that day because it's, it's changed our nation forever. So the 107 club.com you can go there. We give away, to our members for a $10 monthly reoccurring donation. You'll get, you'll get a sticker and a patch. You'll get a hand uh, uh, a written address letter. Um, and then you'll be entered into every drawing that we have. We do them about quarterly where we give away guns. Uh, we've given away a, a custom AR-15. We've given away a, an incredible uh, bullpup shotgun. Uh, we just gave away my favorite sidearm uh, just last Thursday, um, a, a Glock 19 um, concealed carry that I, that I carry daily. And uh, so we, we try to engage that way. And we have a lot of members that are $10 a month donors. And that's what funds all of the work that we do is those private small donations. So I would encourage anybody that if they can, they can spare 10 bucks. Um, that's that's the, probably the best return on your investment. Awesome. Great. Well, I might also add, um, there is a Facebook page for the Utah Defend the Guard that has been started. Um, so that way we can measure what's going on here, how many people are getting on board. So Please do go check out Dan McKnight and his organization, Bring Our Troops Home. Go visit the websites, get involved, help out with this. Cause this is, I would say one of, especially right now with the climate between ending Afghanistan and now with Russia, Ukraine, I would say this is a bill that actually is extremely relevant to what's going on right now. So Dan, thank you so much for your time and for everything you've done with your, your group. And hopefully we can start seeing by the, if not by the end of, well, maybe it's already ended for all the states in the legislative session, but by next year, I'm hoping that we can start seeing some real serious progress and victories. So thank you and everyone, thank you for tuning in. Have a good night. Mm -hmm.